Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Forward. It's the one move we're all ready to take. And at the Audi Moving Forward sales event, we're ready to help you on that journey. All Audi dealerships are now open. With tailored solutions to suit your individual needs, like the Audi A6 Saloon, with PCP finance from only €499 Euro per month. Now is the time to make an appointment. Now is the time to start moving forward. Audi. Vorsprung Duck Technik. Terms and conditions apply. Anyway, I didn't forget. I was literally on the bus being like, don't forget to say good day. Don't forget to say good day. Don't forget to say good day, everyone. <laughs> stunning. No, not stunning. Stunsville. Stunsville, North Carolina. We need to come up. Okay, so everybody, as well as busy, we've got stunning. Yes. Just as like a general, like when something's great, it's stunning, okay? So then every, so there's a new thing from my friend Sophie where it's like Stunsville. So originally it was Stunsville, Tennessee. So now we need to come up with like different cities. My favorite so far, come up with my ha- from my housemate um, uh, Kaylee, is Stunnington, DC. Stunnington, DC is very good, but I feel like different states like have different moods. Mm. Like something that's like Stunsville, New York, compared to like no, no. Stunsville, Oklahoma. I love Stunsville, Massachusetts. Yes, Massachusetts. Not an easy word to say. Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Massa- Massachusetts. <laughs> what a great a true crime podcast. I know. Uh, my name's Jess. Oh, I'm Ellen. And we host Murder in the Land of Oz, an Australian true crime podcast. An occasional slang. Stunsville. Stunsville. And you're busy. Tutorial. So shout out to everybody who's been giving it to me on busy because busy is so happening. Yes. Happening. We're busy right now. We are. We are so busy. We're like, literally so busy. Literally so busy. We're dying. Um, yeah. We're preparing very well for our Victorian season. Yes. I've had a fever, so if I say anything completely messed up, it's because I'm very sick. Yeah, Ellen's been sick. I haven't, I've been sick, but not on the degree of Ellen being sick. I got a cold last week, so that's why she's all nasal and weird. Yeah, she's been busy though. We've been very busy with she's been our so busy. illnesses. Well, we, it was so funny. We got our timeline wrong in our episodes. <gasps> we said after Wanda Beach that the Halloween episode was coming out, but actually the Halloween episode came out and then Wanda Beach came out. This is what happens when you record them all like in one I go. I know. That's the thing. We haven't recorded in so long. We actually haven't. We went to Supernova though. 
Yes, thank you to everybody. Thank you to everybody who we spoke to at Supernova. No thank you to everybody who was like, oh, I saw you at Supernova, but I didn't come and say hello. No, you should thank come and you. Say hello. How many people said that? More than one. Really? Yeah, there was a few comments of people being like, oh, but I didn't come up and say hi. I was like, oh, I would have finally felt famous. Finally. It was a fun day. We sat at the booth and we talked to people about podcasts like we knew what we were doing. Um, lots of very informative people telling us about things. Yeah, we got a lot of um, lot of uh, recommendations. Yes, we did. And then um, we went and had a drink. Well, by we, I mean, I had a drink. Yeah. Because Ellen forgot her identification. Yeah, so I just sat there like a child while Jess <laughs> sculled ciders like it was going out of style. I had one pint. Well, I had nothing, so <laughs> I'm still better about it. And then we came back and Ellen made me watch wrestling. I'm and a big I found wrestling out fan. I don't like wrestling one little bit. I think your like opinion of me went down because I was cheering pretty hardcore. You were also standing like three feet behind me. Yeah, I was so busy for it. Yeah. I was so, so, It was a very so, good so match busy. though. Yeah. It was great. But yeah, and then just to continue the friendship, and to continue the... Uh, I think our listeners need to hear well, all the rest well, of our Basically, mind. we just got drunk. And then what happens to me when I can't emotionally cope with something is I fall asleep. That's my new thing now. Mm. When I just can't cope, I go to sleep. It's a good coping mechanism. Yeah. It's more healthy than other coping mechanisms. Yeah, I thought so. So poor Ellen <laughs> had to cope with me falling asleep. Yes, I had to look after Jess while she was asleep. Uh, that's fine. I've looked after you in worse states. And I've looked after you in worse states, I think. Yes, you have. Let's not talk about it. Anyway, true crime. Busy. Anyway, so once again, Ellen's taking the reins because she, she's done all the work this season. I'm exhausted. <laughs> you have done so much work. I've done a few episodes. But you have, done- you're doing more episodes in Victoria, so it'll even out. Yeah, that's true. And I got some fucking doozies. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to, not that New South Wales or Queensland have been bad, but I think Victoria, they're weird down there. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's cold, they're miserable. It's so funny though, because every time I talk, um, so I was out at dinner last week and talking to new friends and they were like, oh, but South Australia though. Yes. Everybody's keen for South Australia. I'm keen for South Australia. My favourite case is going to be in South Australia. Summer to men represent going to be a good one which one's that oh the guy on the beach yeah right and you want to do beaumont yes i want to do the people on the barrels oh jess i don't think you can handle that (laughs) (laughs) love and respect your work as a professional but i think that you will vomit if your reaction to dr death is anything to go by also how rad was the dr death episode um, I've gotten many messages from people being like, it's fucking disgusting. <laughs> My assistant manager at work was like, I was listening to it on the train and I suddenly realised I couldn't feel my toes. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't go to the doctor because you never know what they'll do to you. You never know. All right. Well, Shall we begin this episode? I know that was a lot of digressions. Also, um, you should go on the Tea Public site and get some um, yes. Murder in the Land of Oz merch. Please do. Right now it's on sale, but by the time you hear this episode, they'll probably be on another sale. (laughs) It's fine. I actually have one of them now, and they're very comfortable. They're good quality. Size up. Yeah, God, dolls. I 
unfortunately decided at Supernova to wear a black bra because I'm an idiot and decided to go with a medium. Idiot. When you got big boobs, it's not a thing. Don't size up. Size Hashtag up. size up. Okay, guys. All right. Cute. Okay. Back to it. Ellen, what are we talking about tonight? Tonight we are talking about the Bowerville murders. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to remember how we found out about them. Somebody that you know yeah, told I you about them. Yeah, I met this guy at work mm. and he's from a town outside Bowerville yeah. and was like, you need to look into Bowerville. Like you will be so freaked out. And I was like, hey, I'm going to hand that off to Ellen. Yes, it's not that freaky. It's just like Sad. shit house and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily going to be the funniest episode we've no. ever done. And look, to be honest, has any of New South Wales been like super duper hilarious? No, we really picked the tragedies yeah. this time. Same with Victoria. I, it's not going to be cute. Having said that though, like murders, not the brightest topic. No, not no. necessarily the funniest thing we could be discussing. Definitely not. Um, Before we get into the meat of the episode, I want to say that this episode will talk about deceased children and deceased indigenous people so if you do not want to or cannot listen to things of that nature please don't please stop now um but yes Bowerville murders very not good so basically the Bowerville murders is the title given to the murders of these three indigenous children in the town called Bowerville in the early 1990s and the white guy who was charged twice for the murders but so far hasn't actually faced justice. So this is a technically unsolved case, although everybody knows who did it. You know, That's in the eyes of the law, rough. it's unsolved, but it's not really. Um, and just let everybody know I'm going in blind on this one. Yeah, Jess I, knows literally nothing about it. I know literally it. nothing. Uh, usually we're like semi-versed in each other's. I've been busy with Victoria. I've been slacking. She's. <laughs> I've been sick. Leave me alone. Mm. Um, alrighty. So as I said, these murders happened in 1990 to 1991. And there has been a fair amount of media coverage about it, um, especially a podcast series called Bowerville, which was released by The Australian that came out in 2016. Um, if you want to hear this case done by like a professional journalist who has like contacts and stuff, you should definitely listen to it. <laughs> um, it's very good. I, di- I wasn't going to listen to it because I was like, I'm better than some journalist from the Australian. And then you were like, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. Oh, no. Um, Yes, it's rough. So despite despite a fair amount of media coverage, increasing media coverage, it's really not a well-known case. Like if you say Bowerville, even to like true crime fanatics like us, we didn't know what your friend was talking about. Um, And I think that's really sad because I think it is one of the biggest miscarriages of justice Australia has ever seen and hopefully you will agree once you listen to this episode so um part of the reason why we wanted to do this episode as well we actually had a different case planned for the end of New South Wales but we've talked a couple of times kind of like paying lip service to the fact that Australia has a bad relationship with With the indigenous indigenous population Um, and I thought we should probably put our money where our mouth is and and we are well aware of the fact that the homicides that we have covered so far on our case are entirely white people yeah. and that is not good. 
<laughs> yeah. I don't think that's representative of like what we care about, but no, we no. definitely have been going for like sensationalist stories and, you know, stories that have had a lot of media coverage. Um, and I hope that we can continue to bring light to cases that some people have never heard of. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so this is this is our attempt. Not that a one hour long podcast is going to like solve racism or anything, but no, we're no. like, guys, we're totally woke. Uh, <laughs> we come in on one episode about indigenous people. Um, but no, it is, it is. It's important to talk about and it's important to recognize that. Exactly. Us as two white girls. The whitest of the white. The whitest of white girls. We acknowledge that we haven't been fully representational of the people that are affected by homicide in Australia. So we hold our hands up. We are not right. We are not wrong. We are just here talking to you about stuff. So anyway, on we go. On we go, Bowerville. So the names of the three children who were murdered are 16-year-old Colleen Walker, four-year-old Evelyn Greenup, and 16-year-old Clinton Speedy Drew. So the man, you're going to cry. The man who is accused of murdering the three kids is named Jay Hart. He's a white man. He was 25 years old at the time of the murders. Um, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to run through all the facts of the case as we know them today. Some of these facts weren't available at the time of the trial and when the um, investigation was going on. But I think, you know, we have the opportunity now to know everything that we know about the case. I'm going to give you all the information and then I'm going to talk about the trials that happened and kind of where the case is sitting today because it's still ongoing. So Bowerville is a small town located in northern New South Wales hinterland with a population hovering around 1,000. Bowerville is around 75% white and 25% indigenous. Um, the traditional custodians of the land are known as the Gumbanya people. Uh, a report published in 2015 identified Barrowville as one of the most disadvantaged towns in the entirety of New South Wales, among the worst 5% in the whole state, alongside a town that I lived in as a child. I was like, cool, that explains a lot of things. <laughs> Um, so low income, low employment, high numbers of people in Centrelink and high levels of substance abuse plague the town. Um, it's also quite segregated with the majority of the indigenous populations living in an area on the outskirts of town known as the Mission, which retains its name from when it was a government controlled reserve. So it was from the Mission that the three children went missing in a span of five months from September 1990 to February of 1991. So the first child to go missing was 16-year-old Colleen Walker. Colleen was a bright, funny and cheeky girl who'd come down from Sawtell where she lived with her family to visit family and friends who lived in Bowerville. So events at the Mish were predominantly Indigenous affairs, but there was the one white guy who lived nearby who would attend the various parties supplying drugs and alcohol. This was Jay Hart. He was a 25-year-old labourer who worked down at the local tanning factory. He was a very big man. He was 185 centimetres tall and weighed 105 kilograms. Um, And his nickname was The King. Oh, I hate that. I feel like it was probably self-appointed. Nobody like, you know, you call yourself The King. Nobody's going around being like, that guy is The King. That reminds me of school. Remember that person that would refer to themselves as King? No. And nobody else called them that, but they always called themselves that? No, I don't. We're going to have to We talk won't about share the identity, <laughs> but, you know, we'll Ooh, talk a about mystery. that afterwards. Mystery podcast. Mystery. Um, so, Jay Hart lived on a caravan on his mother's Marlene's property. 
Um, he didn't get on very well with his mother's boyfriend, nor a fair amount of the white population of Bowerville. But the fact that he was kind of the supplier for drugs and alcohol meant that he was uh, pretty popular on the mission. He actually had his own little patch of marijuana plants um, in the state forest off of Congarini Road, which was not far from Bowerville. Uh, Jay Hart had a number of relationships with various Indigenous women in Bowerville, including Colleen Walker's Aunt Allison, with whom he had a child, although Allison and her son moved to Queensland in 1987 after instances of physical and verbal abuse from Jay. Um, Jay was known to have a bit of a temper and he'd lashed out at a few people after drunken nights, including one incident where he smashed in the front door of a couple he'd had an argument with with a golf club and told the couple that they weren't, if they weren't careful, he would bury them underneath his marijuana plants. Ugh. Please remember that fact because it will come up later. Ugh. Yes. So um, a few months before she was murdered at a party on the mission, um, Jay Hart was seen cracking on to Colleen Walker, who again was 16 at the time. Jay Hart was 25. Yeah. He asked Colleen and one of her friends, Patricia, to go back to his caravan to watch music videos and drink a little bit more. Um, which the girls did. And after a couple of hours, the two girls went to sleep in Jay Hart's double bed while he, and I don't understand this. I'm repeating this information from reports, but he apparently slept on his fold out dining table, which doubled as a single bed. What? I can't, I'm sure something has gone wrong somewhere in translation because I could not envision nor Google a fold out table slash single bed, unless you just whack a mattress on top of, the table literally like we were just talking about before. yeah man people with unconventional sleeping situations i'm not about it put nah. your bed on a bed frame 2k18 <laughs> anyway jay slept on the fold out thing so the next morning when they woke up colleen told patricia that jay had come into the bed at night and tried to have sex with her but she managed to fight him off patricia had been so drunk that she hadn't woken up and colleen was basically in the same state so it was a miracle essentially that a 16 year old could push this 185 centimeter 105 kilogram guy off her so two months two months after that uh september 13th 1990 there was another party on the mission um, Colleen's plan was to attend the party for a while before going to catch a train to another town where she was going to spend the night with some friends. Uh, once again, witnesses said that they saw Jay Hart cracking onto Colleen, asking her once again to come and spend the night in his caravan. Colleen said no, saying that she already had other plans for the night. She was seen, um, past midnight walking down the laneway next to the house. You know how some, in some suburbs, they have little like, yeah, yeah, yeah little laneway leading next to the house. Um, and Jay Hart was seen around the same time on the other side of the house following Colleen. And Colleen was never seen again. So since Colleen had planned to leave Bowerville that night to go to another town, her disappearance didn't automatically raise alarm bells. It wasn't until the 17th of September that her mother back home in Sawtell became worried and travelled down to Bowerville to report her missing. She supplied the police with a photo of Colleen and the police asked Muriel, Colleen's mother, if Colleen was actually her daughter because Colleen had lighter skin than Muriel. They said to her that uh, she doesn't look Aboriginal to us. They, Fucking white people! Right? Just wait. Just wait for this. They suggested to Muriel that Colleen had gone walkabout. Oh, my God! No! Yeah. They said she's probably just gone walkabout. She'll come back soon. And they said to her that they couldn't do anything for 48 hours. 
spewing, absolutely spewing. Um, obviously, she wasn't going walkabout, fucking racist <laughs> pricks. Um, so Colleen's family searched themselves for Colleen, but they they never found anything. They didn't find her. They didn't find a trace of her. It was honestly like she'd vanished into thin air. So three months later, October 3rd, 1990, there's another party on the mission um, in a neighbouring house to where Colleen disappeared. This was the house of Patricia Statham's. Uh, Once again, Jay Hart was in attendance. Now, Jay Hart had had a previous sexual relationship with Patricia Statham's daughter, Rebecca, who was there at the party as well with her three children. So as the party were on, um, Rebecca took her three kids, Aiden, Aaron and Evelyn, round to their dad's house to stay, but their dad was too drunk to take care of them. So she comes back home with the kids and Rebecca and the three kids go to sleep in one of the bedrooms in the house. Um, By this time, the party was over, but Jay Hart was still hanging around. Patricia asked him to leave before going to sleep himself and he was like, oh, yeah, right, I'm going. Um, Later on, Patricia would testify that she heard Evelyn crying and then suddenly stopping sometime after midnight. A woman who was staying in the house that night of the party saw Jay Hart leave the room Rebecca and the children were sleeping in in the early hours of the morning. Uh, She said that he was very eager to get out of the house, that he was almost running out of the house. Uh, The next morning, Rebecca woke up with a hangover with her underwear and pants missing. Aiden and Aaron were playing by the foot of the bed, but Evelyn was nowhere to be seen. Rebecca started looking around the house for her and located one of Evelyn's pink sand shoes in the front yard and then began searching herself around Bowerville. Um, And when it became evident that Evelyn was not anywhere nearby, Rebecca and her sister Michelle went to the police station to report her missing. When she arrived there around 7.30 at night, the policeman on duty asked her what she wanted him to do about it and informed informed her that he was the only police officer present and he was about to clock off for the night. It's a four-year-old child. Four-year-old child was missing oh my god could you imagine and like could you imagine if that kid was white could you imagine if that kid was white like seriously amber alert every single newspaper like front page news but no seriously like what do you want me to do about it i'm about to clock off that's what i say when a customer comes in at like 5 29 i'm like sorry i'm about to clock off That is not what a police officer should do when faced with a four-year-old child who has gone missing. Um, So that police officer at the time didn't take a statement from Rebecca or Michelle on that day, um, but they did take one three days later. Three days? Three days later. Once again, police asked Rebecca about whether or not Evelyn was her daughter (gasps) because Evelyn had lighter skin, blonde hair, and blue eyes. Oh, fuck off. Fuck off. Fuck off. Uh Uh-huh. And they also suggested, again, that She's Evelyn had gone, gone walkabout. No! I can only assume that Rebecca and Michelle were like, She's fucking four. <laughs> Where would she walk about to? Oh. Honestly. My. When I read that for the first time, I felt rage. I'm so mad. I'm so mad. Um. Yeah, so it took three days for them to actually start looking for her. Again, a four-year-old child, three days missing with nothing. Um, so although everybody in the Indigenous community of Barraville was concerned about the two girls going missing and, like, it was, a, it was a weight that, you know, hung quite heavily over the community, they didn't automatically connect 
the, the two, two disappearances a 16 year old girl and a four-year-old yeah, like you don't really age. 12 years yeah you you don't really think that you know those two things will be because also like someone kidnapping a four-year-old yeah to someone kidnapping a 16 year old yeah like, you, you think it would be a different person mm. but everybody was in agreement that like look regardless of the circumstances two people have gone missing and jack shit has been done about it essentially yeah um so the next person to go missing was 16 year old clinton speedy derue Clinton had come down to Barrowville in December of 1990 to spend some time living with his father, Thomas DeRue. Um, Clinton had quickly become close with a girl named Kelly Jarrett and the two began dating. There was another party held at the mission on January 31st, 1991. Jay Hart was there. Of course he was because he's an asshole. Yup. Um, as were Kelly and Clinton. Um, so at one point in the night, Clinton's dad, Thomas, came up to where the party was being held um, to tell Clinton to come home, but he found Clinton asleep and he told Kelly to tell him to come home when he woke up. Thomas would never see Clinton again. Oh, you'd be kicking yourself. You'd be kicking yourself. You'd be like, I should have woken him up. I should have picked him up and dragged him home. Um, so Jay Hart asked Kelly Jarrett to come back to his caravan and she replied that she didn't want to go anywhere without Clinton. So Jay invited Clinton along too. And the three went back to the caravan to drink a bit more and watch some music videos. I hate that. I don't know what about that that makes me so fucking mad. I think it's very 90s. Like, hey, you want to come back to my caravan and watch watch music music videos? videos? No, I don't. Probably turn on Rage. Like, what else is on at three o'clock in the morning? I just want to let you all know I'm way too busy to go anywhere and watch music videos, all right? Yes, seriously. Way too busy. I'm not watching. I have YouTube. Um. Alrighty, so once again, uh, Clinton and Kelly slept in Hart's double bed. I assume Hart took the fold-out thing. Um, And Kelly awoke around 8.40 the next morning to find her underwear and pants missing and Clinton nowhere to be found. Fuck me. Although his shoes were still in the caravan. So thinking that maybe Clinton had just left without her, Kelly took Clinton's shoes back to his house, but he wasn't there. Clinton's father, Thomas, became very alarmed. Everybody in Clinton's family said, like, this like he was I think he must have been like a sneakerhead or something like that like he would never go anywhere without his shoes they said that he wouldn't even go to the bathroom without putting on shoes if somebody was like hey me it is like you that's exactly what I Jess never takes her shoes off Jess wears shoes all the time I've only just become comfortable in Zane's house to be barefoot it's it's so strange I would not wear shoes if it wasn't incredibly socially questionable not to and also incredibly dangerous not to wear shoes look I mean yes um so yes Clinton was a Jess and he would always wear his shoes everywhere so the fact that he like his dad knew straight away the fact that he had apparently left something is straight up wrong because he wouldn't have gone anywhere without them um so once again Thomas went to the police he was told that the police couldn't do anything until Clinton had been missing for 24 hours and once again they suggested that Clinton had gone walkabout. I can't get over how racist this it's is. It's so racist. I can't. It's so racist. And also it's terrible police work. I know it's a little bit of like a – in very old, outdated cop shows, it'd be like, we can't do anything until she's been missing for 24 hours. That's not true. They should do – they are supposed to do it straight away. Yeah. Straight away look for a missing person. It was literally because they did not care. No. They actually did not care. So, what is going – is Fifi biting you? Jess is in I, pain. I 
so I got the cat on my lap because I knew I needed some comfort. But every time I go to touch a particular spot on Fifi's belly, she gets her like foot claw <laughs> and is like, nope. <laughs> She's not pleased with the story either. Um, so after Clinton went missing, the Barrowville police asked for assistance from the child mistreatment unit based in Coffs Harbour to assist with the case as they believed that the families and the communities of the missing children were responsible for the disappearances essentially. What? Yeah. They thought like they were like this is not a homicide, this is not an abdu- abduction, this is child mistreatment and neglect. Mm. Yeah. Um, it gets much worse. The child mistreatment unit asked Patricia Statham's, who is Evelyn's grandmother, whether or not a payment that went into her account from her. <gasps> yeah, so she got payment from um, her war pension because her husband was a Vietnam War veteran. Um, and they asked Patricia if she had sold Evelyn and if the payment was a payment for her selling. Oh, my God. Yeah. I don't even know what to say. I'm so ashamed. I yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. It's it's shameful. I'm fucking ashamed. It's very shameful. You could, you know, if you were racist, you could make the argument like, oh, they had to look into everything. But the thing is that they looked into everything apart from the fact that they were murdered by somebody. Um so like as you can imagine, the the community was just disgusted by the treatment. It kind of played into some like very racist stereotypes that, you know, white institutions have about the way that a lot of Indigenous families work and that, you know, there's much more of a shared community responsibility for looking after children. Like it's not like your mum and your dad look after you all the time. No, it's like a village. village village, Exactly, like a village raises raises the child. So that's part of why the police were so sure that, you know, somebody in this community had something to do with it because they were ignorant about the way the children were raised and assumed that maybe because mum wasn't watching them every nanosecond of the day that they weren't being cared for, but they were being cared for. These children had great lives. They were not being mistreated or neglected in any way. Um, so yeah, basically like the thought that anybody within the community was responsible for the crimes was just unthinkable. So, um, they managed to, you know, do some actual police work and investigated Jay Hart's caravan as that was the last place that Clinton was seen alive. But they said to Jay, like, oh, look, mate, we're going to seal off your caravan. Is there anything you want to grab from there before we do? Oh, why didn't I just grab that incriminating evidence? He grabbed weights. No. He grabbed weights and they gave him his weights. So the police are rocking up. They're saying, hey. Not the heavy thing. The heavy thing. Don't let the guy who probably did the thing take the heavy thing. They, yes, they took, they took the heavy thing. So he didn't take like a shirt or underwear or his work clothes or anything like that. He took his weights. That was the only thing he took out of the caravan. That is a red flag. Red flag. Alrighty, so we're coming up now to February 18, 1991, where um, the body of Clinton Speedy DeRue was eventually found unburied lying in the bush off Congarini Road, about seven kilometres away from Bowerville. Um, it was evident that Clinton had been murdered. Um, so now that the case was now a homicide investigation. The lead of the child, mis- the head of the child mistreatment unit, Detective Sergeant Alan Williams, was asked to lead the homicide investigation. Um, and this guy seems like a very nice guy, 
and was very frank about the fact that he had never had any homicide investigation experience before. So they had not a homicide unit investigating the crime and they had a guy who was well-intentioned but had literally never investigated a murder before leading this homicide investigation. Sounds like it's going to end well, doesn't it? Uh Uh-huh. Ready? So Clinton was found wearing the same clothes that he wore to Hutt's caravan, minus his shoes, of course. Um, There was a pillowcase that was stuffed down his trousers that police were able to match to one that was found in Jay Hutt's caravan. It appeared that the cause of death had been blunt force trauma to the head. Just after, just over a week after they found Clinton's body, a fisherman fishing in the Numbuka River, not far from where Clinton was found, caught his line on a pair of women's jeans. Police divers searched the area and found bags weighted down with rocks that contained the clothing of Colleen Walker. Her body was never located and has still never been located to this day. Just over a week after that, police discovered the decomposed remains of Evelyn Greenup, close oh, to where Clinton's no. body was found. Poor little baby. She had, su- she had also suffered a blunt force trauma to the head and both Clinton and Evelyn were found near a crop of marijuana plants. So Hart was arrested for the murder of Clinton Speedy DeRue on April 8th, 1991. And while he was on custody waiting tra- awaiting trial for Clinton's murder, he was also arrested for Evelyn's murder. Um, he was committed to stand trial on both charges. So the director of public prosecutions wanted Jay to be tried for both murders in a single trial. So they put forward to the judge um, a series of similar fact evidence to prove that the two murders were related. Um, So that evidence included like the fact that they were both killed or they both disappeared from parties where the accused had been in attendance, um, that their remains had been found along Congarini Road, that neither of the bodies had been buried and that both the victims had injuries to the skull. But the judge presiding decided that the facts were not similar enough to try the cases concurrently. So Jay was tried initially for Clinton's murder with Evelyn's to follow. The trial began in February of 1994. Um, the Crown's case was that Hart had murdered Clinton after Clinton had awoken to find Jay sexually assaulting Kelly. Hart hit Clinton over the head with the object, believed to be the weights that Hart was so eager to get out of the caravan. And then Clinton had died with Hart stuffing the pillowcase down Clinton's pants as his muscles relaxed after death and he began to urinate. Uh, the defense's case was that Clinton vanished from the caravan and was murdered sometime after and shoved along Congarini Road. Um, Jay's defense, Jay's account of what had happened that night is a bit weird and I hope it makes sense when I explain it because it didn't make sense reading it. Um, so he said that the night in question, he had fallen asleep around 3 a.m. with his alarm set for either 5.15 or 5.30 a.m. so he could be at work by 6. Now I'm an early bird, but you're going to be late for work. That is not enough time. 5.30 a.m. to be at work by 6 a.m., that is not possible. Nobody can do it. So, I mean, murders aside, he's a poor planner. Um, (laughs) So his alarm goes off at either 5.15 or 5.30. He hits snooze and goes back to sleep. Um, But in that nebulous kind of time, he registers someone leaving the caravan. Um, so it was a regular, it was a regular arrangement that a workmate of Jay's would come and pick him up for work just before six. Um, but Jay said that on the morning in question, he thought that he had overslept and missed the guy. 
So he went to his mother's house around 5.45 a.m., woke his mum up and asked for the keys to the car so he could drive to work. He heads off to work, but not getting too far along, he sees his friend's car in the rearview mirror heading for his house. So Jay pulls over thinking like, oh, I'll just wait for him to realise that I'm not there and like wait for him to drive back and he'll be like, yo, mate, I'm over here. Um, he waits for a couple of minutes. His friend hasn't come around. So Jay turns around and drives back to his house to meet said friend um, who was there at the caravan looking for Jay. Jay says to the guide, like, don't worry about the lift. I've got the car. You go back to work and I'll follow you. But I've decided to stay home and have a cup of tea. Nah. Nah. Uh, his nah, nah, his, nah, nah, nah. His, his defense was that he was hungover and he wanted like a sit down and a cup of tea to feel better. Well, then you get up and you have a cup of tea. You don't get up, leave, go to your mother's house, get the keys. Drive halfway to work, stop, turn around, be like, yo, mate, I'm I'm on my way to work. But I need a cuppa. But I need a cuppa. Um, I don't – that doesn't follow. That doesn't follow, no. Um, The friend came into the caravan and he says that he saw a pair of women's feet in the double bed and that he heard Jay's alarm clock still ringing. So Jay says that he hit the snooze button and that he got up. I mean, you don't leave your you don't leave your alarm clock ringing if you've got a hangover. No, you no. don't leave your alarm clock ringing if you're a normal person. So very crucial that the guy heard the alarm clock still ringing. Um, Jay eventually arrived to work quite late and apparently obviously still drunk at 6.20 a.m. So... The Crown was like, mm, we're going to call bullshit on that story. Um, they thought that Jay had waited until his mother's boyfriend left, had left for work around 4.45 a.m., went and got the keys then and had left the car, had left with Clinton's body in the car around 5 a.m., which is backed up by a neighbour who says that she saw the car leaving the house around that time. Uh, then he drove... Again, only seven case to Congarini Road, disposed of Clinton's body in an area that was familiar to him because that's where he grew his marijuana plants and then was driving home and saw his mate's car pulling into his street and then he went and was like, oh, yo, buddy. I'm here. I'm here. I'm going to have a cup of tea. But in actuality, I'm cleaning up this crime scene and getting rid of any other incriminating evidence. So uh, the case, although that sounds very suspicious to us, like the case against Jay was almost entirely circumstantial. I think the only thing that could be considered forensic evidence was the pillow case. Um, there was not very much else. And the fact that, you know, Clinton disappeared from his caravan, but there was not much else physically linking right. Clinton, um, to Clinton to Jay. A lot of the case relied on witness testimony, um, so including the time that Jay went inside his mum's house to pick up the car keys, which she placed at 5.50 a.m. Then you have the testimony of the neighbour who says she saw the car leave at 5 a.m. Um, and also the testimony of Kelly Jarrett, Clinton's girlfriend, a number of other people who were at the party that night. And the defence basically discredited all of their statements because they were all drunk the night in question. Um I didn't mention it for some reason because I'm bad at podcasting, but the Crown believed that Jay had actually drugged Kelly. And that's why that she was so that he'd like spiked her drink with a sedative or something like that, which would explain why she didn't wake up when he was taking off her pants. She didn't wake up until 840 in the morning. So if anybody's thinking like who could sleep 
Well, it seems suspicious that the girlfriend was sleeping through this guy apparently murdering his her boyfriend with a weight. He probably drugged her. It's a po- I don't think there's any uh, evidence for that, but that's what the Crown believed. So um, there was also some other witness statements from a number of people in the town who testified that they saw Clinton hitchhiking the day after he was supposedly killed by Jay. Um, And this ended up kind of being like the clincher for the trial as the judge directed the jury that in order to find Jay Hart guilty, they must be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that the man seen by these witnesses was not Clinton. How would they know? How would they know? How would they know? So that is the evidence that was presented at trial. I now want to talk about all the evidence that wasn't presented at trial. So the similar fact evidence um, that the prosecution wasn't able to get into the trial. Um, So they didn't hear anything about Colleen Walker or um, Evelyn Greenup. So they couldn't say, you know, these people were found in the same location. Um, They couldn't say that both Colleen Walker and Rebecca Statham's had woken after a night after a party where Jay Hart was present to find that their pants and underwear were removed in similar circumstances to Kelly Jarrett. Um, they couldn't hear about the fact that Colleen, Colleen Walker's clothes were found in a section of the river that was actually like down the slope to where Clinton's body was found. So only like Same a couple of hundred meters away. Yeah, really, really close. Um, and they didn't hear about the fact that um, Evelyn Walker died from similar injuries um, and that she was found unburied in the similar location to Clinton. They also didn't hear a very crucial piece of evidence that was known to the original detectives but was never given over to the prosecution for some reason. Um, This evidence would become become known as the Norco Corner evidence. So the morning after Clinton's disappearance, these two truck drivers were driving along a stretch of road known as Norco Corner where they saw a white man standing over an Indigenous teenager who was lying on the road near a parked car. The truck drivers asked the white man if he needed any help, to which the man replied that he was just trying to get the boy off the road and that he'd already called the police. The truckies, who were still a bit sus, reported the incident to police at the time, but their statements weren't taken. Um, Norco Corner is apparently just around the corner uh from where Jay Hart lived at the time and obviously where Clinton was last seen alive. Um, and the car that the truck drivers saw, the car matched the description of the car that Jay Hart was driving at the time. It was like a bright orange, Something real, dumb. real 90s looking car, but it was bright orange. So like hard to miss, hard to miss, hard to forget a uh, town of 1000 people ha- who, how many people have orange cars? Um, the description of the white man that the people saw matched the description of Jay Hart and the description of the indigenous teenager matched the description of Clinton. So none of this evidence was ever presented to the jury and they found Jay Hart not guilty of Clinton's murder exactly three years to the day that his remains were found in the bush off Congarini Road. Because of this defeat, the Crown decided not to go forward with prosecuting Jay for Evelyn's murder. No. Because they wouldn't have been able to bring in any of that similar fact evidence. They just knew that. Oh, no. The case against Clinton was strongest. If Clinton had been convicted, if Jay had been convicted of Clinton's murder, then they could have. Then they would have been like, yo, he was done for this murder in the exact same circumstances. But because that didn't happen, they couldn't prosecute him for Evelyn's murder. And Jay Hart was, in the eyes of the law, an innocent man. Fuck that. Yeah. Um, I think 
it's not really possible to overstate the impact that <laughs> Fifi is playing with Jess's earrings. It's very cute. Um, yeah, the impact that this had on the families of the murdered children and the Indigenous community as a whole, um, they, were, they were furious to the fact that the police hadn't treated the disappearances as disappearances or murders from the get-go. One of the family members of Colleen, I believe, said that if Colleen's disappearance was treated as a murder from day one, Clinton and Evelyn Wouldn't need have not been, have died, you yeah. know. If they'd taken it seriously, he would have been in prison before he had a chance to get his hands on anybody else. Um, the families of the three murdered children did everything that they possibly could to try and bring justice. Um, they invited the Barrowville police force to meetings with the family to talk about, you know, their feelings and everything that had happened in the case. Um, none of the police officers attended. Um, they invited their local members of parliament and other, you know, government officials to meetings as well. Nobody attended. Um, the families wrote letters to every single Aboriginal organisation in Australia and asked these organisations to write letters um, into Parliament. And eventually in 1996, the New South Wales Police Commissioner, Peter Ryan, went to Bowerville to meet with the families. Peter Ryan was the first official to ever discuss the Bowerville murders with the families in question. So this is six years after the first person died. It was the first time that anybody from the government got involved yeah it's rough so um based on a review of the evidence and based on this meeting um in december of 1996 the commissioner announced the creation of strike force ANCUD, whose purpose would be to reinvestigate the Bowerville murders so the strike force would be headed by detective inspector gary jubilin this guy is a ledge Pure and simple, um, just like a good police officer and a great Aussie bloke. He led this investigation like with so much respect and dignity and, you know, just such an attitude of like there is only one outcome of this and that outcome is justice. Like he listened to the families. He worked with the families. He's the real MVP. Shout out to Gary Jubilin. If you ever listen to this, hit us up. Um, we'll buy you, Bevy. We'll buy you one beverage. We can't afford anything else. <laughs> We're very poor. We're very poor. Um, so one of the biggest differences of the strike force versus the original investigation into the murders that uh, the strike force was made up of detectives and analysts from the homicide and major crimes departments. What? Apparently it's good to have homicide detectives investigating homicides. Really? You really? don't say. I know. Gee willikers. Um, and the, there was no police officers from Bowerville involved. Quite often, like, I think when things like that, you need to get people from that aren't on the inside. Exactly, of it you can't have people on the inside. Yeah, because it was 
I think it would have just created too much. And that's like that's that's with it. that's with any investigation probably because somebody hates somebody or exactly somebody in did these small something. towns. How many like Netflix dramas are there about like small town cops like you know getting too invested and they're like, in crimes old and like, Ned? He's yeah. the one that done did it. But actually, that thing, it was the mayor. But everybody's in the mayor's pocket, yeah. so you know nobody brings them up for the crimes. We they should avoid write it. a Netflix series. We should please sponsor us Netflix. Um, so the investigation was quite simple. Basically, they had to locate all of the evidence and information from the first investigation and reassess it. Um, and they also re-interviewed old witnesses and interviewed for the first time a number of people that had been overlooked in the first investigation. Um, the task force identified a single person of interest quite quickly, but they were committed to following all lines of inquiry so they didn't get tunnel vision. Because they're good at their job. Good old cops. Um, Just so people don't think it was a witch hunt against this guy. Like they did, you know, look at all the options and all roads led to one destination. Um, All the detectives also undertook cultural awareness and sensitivity training at the beginning of the investigation. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. And this had a big impact on the way that they actually can conducted their investigations because they were finding like for example the way that they interviewed witnesses was not working in terms of getting information from a lot of the indigenous people that they were interviewing due to the fact that you know there's differences in the you know quirks and mannerisms and ways that indigenous people speak quite often you know there some cops moseying in on these people being like where were you on the night of the murder you know that's not going to work for people who have a historically incredibly tense relationship and distrust well-placed distrust of the police well-placed you know really they were uncomfortable and they had already spent so much time being betrayed by the legal system in this case and I'm sure in plenty of other cases you know indigenous people in Australia do not have a good relationship with the police you know it's very fair of them to not want to talk to the police but anyway the investigators and the strike force took that on board they changed their interview style to be much more like relaxed and they took a lot longer time to interview people they basically were like we did it on their schedule so you know we weren't like we got to rush off an interview witness b they just sat down got the information you know and they ended up getting more better quality information from a lot of the witnesses Um, they re-interviewed the truck drivers who gave the Norco road evidence, um, and they recorded that evidence. They, uh, wrote it all down. So they had a full statement, um, and they also re-interviewed the witnesses who said that they saw Clinton hitchhiking the next day. And what they found out is that these witnesses weren't like, yeah, I saw Clinton. He was there on that road hitchhiking. They said that they'd seen like an indigenous teenager that could have been Clinton. So there's a big difference between, you know, that was Clinton to that was an indigenous teenager. Um, So the reinvestigation, yeah, the strike force did a very good job and they found a lot of information that wasn't originally, well, I guess it just wasn't investigated enough for this information to come to light. Um, But it took a really long time for any of this information to go anywhere. So um, in 1998, the results of the strike force investigation were forwarded to the director of public prosecutions um, who reviewed the evidence. But it wasn't until 2004 that it was decided that the coronial inquest into the deaths of Evelyn and Colleen would be reopened. 
So that's like 14 years after the murders. So um, at the inquest in the relation to the murder of Evelyn Greenup, the coroner was satisfied that there was sufficient evidence to satisfy a jury that Evelyn was murdered and that there was a reasonable reasonable prospect that the jury would convict a known person of her murder. Um, Known person is in sarcastic quotation marks. Uh, In the case of Colleen, the coroner found that she had died as a result of homicide and although the coroner was not able to speak to cause of death due to the fact that Colleen's body has never been found, the coroner did state that the evidence relating to Colleen's disappearance and the murder of Clinton and Evelyn's was so similar that there was a probability that a known person was responsible for Colleen's murder as well. Um, The coroner stated that the circumstances surrounding the disappearance of Colleen Walker and the murders of Evelyn Greenup and Clinton Speedy DeRue have strikingly similar characteristics. The evidence shows that the person of interest was involved in the disappearance. Not to shock you, but the person of interest in question was Jay Hart. You don't say? Yes. So the findings uh, from the inquest were enough to satisfy the DPP that a case could once again be brought against our old friend. So that leads us on to February 26th. He's already been tried for the murder of Clinton, so he's indicted this time for the murder of Evelyn Greenup. Um, the feeling at this point in time was that, like, there was, you know, we've got all this information from the new police investigation. We've got the coroner saying, yeah, I think a jury will find this person guilty. Everybody is feeling very, very good. But the judge allows two critical applications from the defense. One, to exclude tendency and coincidence evidence um, from the trial and that information was relating to the disappearances of Clinton and Colleen. And he also struck evidence from prison inmates who had testimony to say that Jay Hart bragged about committing the murders to him. So once again, we're going into trial. Nothing from Clinton or Colleen's disappearance is allowed to be spoken about um, and there's no evidence from these jailhouse snitches essentially that Jay bragged Love to. Love me a jailhouse snitch. Love honest. a jailhouse snitch. Like jailhouse snitches, man, they're your best friend or your worst enemy. Um, so he was tried. Uh, Evelyn's case was just heard in isolation and he was found not guilty. Oh, yes. So the family of Evelyn Greenup and also Detective Inspector Jubilin were not very happy about the way that this case was prosecuted. They both said later on that the prosecutor trying the case was going through the motions and that before the trial had even begun, the prosecutor had stated, we are not going to win this case. Not necessarily what she prosecuted to be saying. Um, Evelyn's family also felt that it Jay wasn't being put on trial. They felt like they were being put on trial for the way that they behaved the night that Evelyn went missing. Um, Rebecca especially, they felt was being portrayed as an unfit mother because she was drunk the night Evelyn disappeared. A lot of mothers get drunk. A lot of mothers get drunk. You know what? A lot of mothers don't magically take their pants off when they're lying in bed one night. No. You know what I mean? That wasn't Rebecca's fault. None of it was Rebecca's fault. Um, Witnesses from other, like the families of the other victims were called to give evidence at Evelyn's trial, but they were told that they couldn't mention anything to do with Colleen or Clinton. They couldn't act like there was any other disappearances or murders at all. So this is very confusing and also quite traumatic for them because they're being asked, you know, asked about one murder, 
being forbidden from saying anything about their family members who also were murdered by this sicko. So, yeah, the the trial was not – wasn't one of those great courtroom drama scenes, I don't think. I think there is the feeling from both the detective inspector and the families that the prosecution weren't supportive mm. of the victims, which is what, you know, the Crown is there to represent the people who have died. You know, it's their job to be the advocate for the victims because they can't speak for themselves and they did not feel like this had occurred in this case. Um, and also, this is one of the most disgusting things that happened. Um, on the day that the verdict was said to, like, the verdict was going to be read out, um, there were riot police inside the courtroom. They asked riot police to stay inside the courtroom. And there were so many police officers, in fact, that uh, Thomas DeRue couldn't get inside the courtroom on the day the verdict was being read out. Because they thought those crazy, they're going to riot, those crazy Aborigines, they're going to riot when they find out that this white man's not going to prison. So some of the members of the families could not even get in to the courtroom. <laughs> I think that was particularly racist. That's the most, yeah. No, there's been a lot of horrible shit in this episode that's just equally as terrible as everything else. Exactly. I can't deal. I can't deal either. Um, So obviously devastated by the non-guilty verdict, but the families didn't take it lying down. They actually, they had been campaigning for about three years, but they continued to campaign for New South Wales Parliament to review the double jeopardy laws. Um, which they eventually did. So in 2006, the New South Wales government introduced an amendment to the double jeopardy laws saying that a defendant can be recharged for a number of serious crimes, including murder, in the light of fresh and compelling evidence. Um, and the Bowerville murders were directly mentioned during debates um, in Parliament on amendments to the Act. So it was a result of the families campaigning that these laws were eventually changed, which I think is a win. And the families also thought it was a win. Yeah. Hey, we've we've had this win. The laws are changed now. Maybe this guy will go to prison. So in February 2007, um, the strike force gave a submission to the DPP to try and get an application for a retrial for Clinton and Evelyn's murders and an indictment for the murder of Colleen. So he'd never even been charged no, yeah. or anything in relation to Colleen. So they wanted to make that right. Um, so they submitted this application and the DPP found that the evidence in the submission was not fresh or compelling and that a retrial would not go ahead. Um, this evidence in question was the Norco Corner evidence, which was never brought before a jury. I feel like that's pretty compelling if it's never been brought to a jury before. Exactly. The director of public prosecutions, Nicholas Cowdery, said that while the evidence was indeed fresh, it was not compelling enough to warrant a retrial. So... After literally changing the law, still can't get a retrial for the families. Um, they tried again. They made an application to the Attorney General in 2009 for a retrial um, in the Court of Criminal Appeal, which the Attorney General rejected. When a new Attorney General was elected in 2011, um, he made a public statement before he was elected that he would review the Bowerville. Yeah, he was like, I will look into the Bowerville murders. And the families were like, sick, we're doing it. Um, he reviewed that information um, and then he took two years to come to the conclusion that he would reject it again. So that was in 2013. Um, so he didn't inform the family members of this himself. He called like the Bowerville Shire or whatever MP 
um, who was a man named Andrew Stoner, who then called the family spokesperson, Leonie DeRue, who was Clinton's sister-in-law, and was like, hey, um, the AG's rejected your application. Sorry about it. Also, this is the only phone call I'm going to make, so you have to tell every other person in the family. This is despite the fact that both the AG and Andrew Stoner, their MP, had promised to give them the information in person. So not only did they not do that, they made Leonie tell all of these people, the families of every single person that died, that a retrial would not go ahead. Um, And in that same phone call, Andrew Stoner mentioned that there would be an article in the Sydney Morning Herald the next day. He was like, Leonie, I just want to warn you, there's going to be an article about it in the Sydney Morning Herald. Leonie was like, so you told the fucking Sydney Morning Herald before you told the families of the victims that the retrial wasn't going to go ahead? Raging. Rage. So in March of 2013, the families held a protest where they marched to Parliament House to protest the lack of justice for the murdered children and the mistreatment that the families had suffered generally from the legal system. And then Attorney General Greg Smith did finally meet with the families of the victims. He spoke to the um, family of Clinton Speedy Drew specifically um, to discuss his decision. Um, at this meeting, Mr. Smith told the families that they should get more grief counselling. Oh, fuck off, you piece of shit. Um, And Thomas Drew said that at one point in the meeting, the attorney general accidentally called him by the accused's name. Can you imagine, like, yeah, I'm here to talk about my murdered son and why you won't let this man, Jay Hart, go to prison for it. And the internal general goes like, well, Jay, I mean, Thomas. Disgraceful. Um, the meeting lasted for 20 minutes. Oh. oh. Yeah. So uh, Thomas Dury said that he had taken the train from Bowerville down to Sydney and had taken him eight hours and he would have to get the train for eight hours back for 20 minutes of the Attorney General's time. Um, and Detective Jubilin was pretty annoyed by the Attorney General's reasoning. So Attorney General Smith had said that while the evidence was compelling, as it was av- due to the fact that it was available to police in 1991, it was not fresh. So you have the DPP Nicholas Cowdery saying it's fresh but not compelling, and the Attorney General, on the other hand, Cam- saying it's compelling, compelling but not, not fresh. fresh. So it's fresh and compelling in its totality, but one person says it's compelling and not fresh. One person says it's fresh and not compelling, so it can't go to trial. So what the fuck is the truth? Is it fresh and compelling? Is it not? What's going on? Why can't these two people who are literally the height of legal decision in New South Wales agree on what they think the evidence is? Um, You can understand why the families were so frustrated and they protested again. So following protests in November 2013, um, the New South Wales Legislative Council agreed to open an inquiry into the impact the murders had on the families of the Bowerville victims. I read the inquiry. I feel like I've, I've, I've talked about a few instances and racist things and stuff like that. There are 1,000 more in the inquiry. Um, I'm going to link to it in the show notes and I'm also going to link to the interviews that the family had with the um, Legislative Council because there's not enough time in this podcast to tell you all of the shit things that happened to these families who are just trying to get justice for their murdered children. 
Um, so the findings of the inquiry were not overly positive. Um, one thing that I would like to say in the submissions for the inquiry, Helen DeRue, who was one of Clinton's aunties, um, made what I think is a very fair comparison to the Daniel Morecambe case. She said, I'm not taking away from what happened to Daniel Morecambe. I have all the sympathies with their family. They understand the grief that we're feeling. But in terms of media attention and police resources and the respect given to the Morecambe family, they had a thousand times what the families, the Bowerville families had, you know. And she said that was for one white kid who went missing. We have three children and we've gotten nothing, which I think illustrates the issues with this case perfectly. Um, yeah, overwhelmingly, the family said that the experience of the legal system had been a roller coaster. That, you know, you're going up, you think that some that a trial is going to be successful. You think that this guy is going to go to prison and then no, he's found not guilty, but that's okay. We're going to go now and we're going to try and change the double jeopardy laws. So we're going, we're fighting for this. The double jeopardy laws are changed, but oh, sorry, no, we're not going to go for a retrial. That's all right. We're going to try again. We're going to appeal to the attorney general. You go up that again. You have to go through everything again. You have to tell some guy you've probably never met before in your life again, how it feels to have had your child or your sister or whoever, ripped from you taken from you and to see and live in the community with this guy who has murdered them over and over and over again for nothing so we're up to 2014 now that's when this inquiry was released so it's 24 years after the murder um the inquiry it, it created a bit of a media splash lots of people read it lots of people were outraged by it um and there was once again the expectation that this the inquiry would lead to another retrial. So in 2015, um, after meeting both with the families and with De Detective Inspector Gary Jubilin, Attorney General Ga Gabriel Upton called for another review of the state's double jeopardy laws um, to allow evidence that was previously considered inadmissible, but due to changes in legislation was now admissible to count as fresh evidence. So finally putting that, is it fresh or compelling shit to bed? Um, so that meant that all the evidence, like the Norco Corner evidence and everything like that, could be considered fresh and would be able to be used in a retrial. But the bill failed to pass Parliament. People can't win, can they? Cannot win. Um, in May of 2016, Detective Inspector Jubilin submitted once again to the Attorney General another application for retrial, saying that he had fresh evidence that warranted it. Um, the Attorney General decided to refer the matter directly to the Court of Criminal Appeal. The evidence related to the disappearance of Colleen Walker and had never been presented at trial. Um, but the court found that the evidence was available to the prosecution at the time of the 2006 trial of Evelyn Greenup and was therefore neither fresh nor compelling. This final application for retrial was rejected in September of 2018. So recording this in November of 2018. 28 years after these three kids were murdered. No trial, no real clear indication of where there is to go from here because, you know, Detective Inspector Jubal and I said before that he... he believed that the only you know destination for this was justice but I think that it is his feeling that all avenues have been exhausted where do you go three attorney generals saying no nah, no retrial 
two, like one change and one proposed change to the laws, nah, no retrial. I, you can't imagine it happening to three children who go missing from, I don't know, Western Sydney or whatever. I don't know if West Sydney is a nice place, but any white kids from any affluent area, like the fucking country would go on lockdown. You know what I mean? Like you would never stop hearing about it. And there, I don't think there's any justification for the fact that the case was not correctly investigated in the first place. Like if you had a homicide detective, one homicide detective looking into the case from the beginning, I find it hard to believe that we would be in this mess we are now. Um, so Jay Hart is still living his life. He's changed his name and he doesn't live in Barrowville anymore. Um, Legally, officially, he's not named in any reports or news reports and stuff like that um, because he is technically innocent, so it's to protect his identity. But, like, who gives a fuck? Um, it was Jay Hart. He did it. If you see him, punch him in the dick for me. I think that, you know, this is a serial killer who raped, potentially, definitely sexually assaulted three women and murdered three children who got in the way, essentially. And nothing's been done. In the Bowerville um, podcast done by the Australian um, journalist Dan Box, uh, interviewed Jay. You're joking. No, I'm not joking. The full interview with him is available. You can listen to it. It's 45 minutes long. He sounds like a very normal, regular bloke. Like, if you didn't know what you knew about him, he'd be like, there's no way that this guy did it. And I was listening to it and I kind of found myself a little bit being swayed by things that he was saying. And I was like, oh, you know, I suppose you could make the case for it and stuff like that. But I can't actually imagine the like logical leaps you would have to make to think that a man who was there all three nights the children went missing. Clinton was last seen in his caravan, like with a pillowcase from his caravan shoved down his pants, found in a marijuana crop and he was the town marijuana supplier. Like how there is no, there's no way, there's no way he didn't do it. And the fact that he's just, he gets to live his life while the families of the Bowerville victims their life will never, ever be the same. And the fact that over and over and over and over again, this country and the legal system has said, well, we don't really care. We don't really care about the fact that there's a murderer walking around and your children are dead. We're just not really going to do anything about that when they've been handed opportunities to do so over and over again. Like, I think the only word that I can sum up is it's disgraceful. It's absolutely disgraceful and it's shameful. As you said before, like I feel ashamed. I feel so ashamed to, you know, we, you know, I don't know. I feel weird because we're always like, yay, the prosecution, the police got the bad guys, but the police aren't always your friend depending on who you are in what Australia color your skin is. and what color your skin is, you know. The same police officer that would do anything for, you know, some white woman who goes missing would potentially not give a shit about about the case if it was an aboriginal woman and yeah this case made me feel bad and now i'm sad <laughs> yeah any same. thoughts jess 
I'm just devastated for these poor people. I'm, I, I'm, I can't, I can't fathom, I can't fathom losing a child and I even more can't fathom nothing being done about nothing it. Nothing being done about it. Just to not have even one person, like luckily the guy that led the task force, but initially like you lose a four-year-old little baby and just to have the police officers be like what do you want me to do about it i want you to find my child yeah so i would encourage everybody listening to this to um investigate more and do as much reading as you can obviously we'll put links and everything like that it's a story that deserves to be as well known as some of the other cases we've covered like alison baden clay and like the beaumont children and like any other, you know, oh, unsolved God. murder case that has shocked the nation, this should be shocking the nation and it's kind of fallen on deaf ears. I'm glad we got to cover it. I'm glad we did too. As I said, you know, us whiteies being like, oh, isn't it terrible? You know, it's not going to do much in the grand scheme of things, but if one person listens to this and is like, I find that bad, I'm going to write to my member of parliament or something like that, you know, that's us done. Also, don't be racist. Yeah, don't. You just don't. I, yeah. I, I have nothing to say. I am very upset right now. So, uh, um, God. Remember when we were like, let's do a tri- true crime podcast. We're really funny. It's going to be a comedy podcast. <laughs> Everybody's going to laugh at our jokes. No, but I'm, I'm really happy that I found out about this and that I could tell you about it and we could talk about it because um yeah as you said if we get one person to be able to write to their member of parliament and just say look how we treat the indigenous people of this land is not right Mm. I can't talk anymore I'm gonna start crying again (laughs) thank you for listening to another Stunsville, <laughs> Tennessee episode of Murder in the Land of Oz. Um, do we have a bonus episode for this season? Doctor Death was the bonus episode. Oh, that was the that was the bonus. And also, oh, and oh, oh the second release that stuff. That's right. We felt we recorded some stuff at Supernova, which you will look forward to listening to after this one, I guess. Who knows? Um, and then, I don't know if it's of any quality. <laughs> oh, but the but no, I I think there was something in there. There sure. was something in there. Um, and, and then after the Supernova episode, we will be starting our Victoria season, and we, I, oh, I will be opening with Jill Ma. Jess has been deep in the Jill Ma investigation for. And about by deep in the Jill Ma, months. I've had about six tabs open on my computer for the last. Two weeks. You're reading the book, though. Didn't you read a book? No, it's um nothing I know has been written in a book yet. We should write a book. Um, but I am headfirst into the um, timelines and six tabs. Yes, that's fucking weak. I think I had fifty tabs just for well, this episode. Well, that's because I like I've I've look. She's been busy, dolls. But um, there will be more tabs. You better open some tabs, girl, mate. She's going to be hectic. I've already opened tabs. I only decided what cases I was doing last week and I've opened tabs. Yes. I have bookmarks. I, I have, have folders 
that are labeled episode one. And I also whatever. have my two other cases ready to go. Yeah, I know. Well. I'm mostly just joshing you because I you are joshing. haven't done anything for Victoria. It's fine. We're professionals. We research a lot. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. Um, so as we said, you can go on Tee Public. You can get your Murder in the Land of Oz merch. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at Murder in the Land of Oz. We're on Facebook on Murder in the Land of Oz. Um, I feel like we should also do an episode about that girl in Cairns when a bit more information comes out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cause shit is getting real and I'm getting real fucking sick of it. Um, not the, not the attention to the case, but the fact that they haven't caught this motherfucker. I'm mm. so mad about yeah, it. Yeah. There's a lot of very questionable things going on at the moment. Yeah. Um, make sure you're rating and reviewing. You can find us on Spotify or you can find us on the Apple iTunes uh, podcast app. You can find us on Stitcher. I thought you were just going to call it the Apple iTunes. Oh, it's just on the Apple iTunes, you know. (laughs) Apple iTunes podcast app. Um, so please make sure to tell your friends if you have friends that like murder and, I can't promise things are going to be funny anymore because um, every episode, as I realized when I was talking about this podcast last week, I cry. People like that though. People think it's like raw and like you know, <laughs> emotional. <laughs> Mitlu, hashtag Mitlu, hashtag raw, hashtag real. We're very hashtag real on the show. Um, right? I'm also just realizing that all of our cases for next season are dark as fuck. Like there's oh, there's not a cheery one in the no. bunch. There is not a cheery one among them. I have to say the Jill Ma one fucked. Um, my one of the second one. No, the third. I'm going to close with the big one, but the third is fucked. Mm. Anyway, we're going to go be busy and we're going to go get ready for Victoria. I'm so excited. I hope you are too. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye. War, famine, politics. Why can't everyone just get along? Yeah, like in musicals. Musicals fix everything. If people listened and learned from musicals, everything would be better. Music, lights and spontaneous choreography. What isn't there to love? If you want to learn all of life's important lessons... Or just listen to some musical theatre nerds wax lyrical... Subscribe to Musicals Tell Me Everything I Know, wherever you find fun and funny podcasts. Or at our website at thatsnotcanonproductions.com. A That's Not Canon Productions podcast. Come home to ultra-fast broadband and Sky's best-ever Wi-Fi for our lowest-ever price from just €30 Euro a month. So you can now play games, stream music and download movies at ultra-fast speeds for less than ever before. To switch from just €30 Euro a month for 12 months, search Sky 30. Availability subject to location, set up these terms and conditions apply. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. Get your broadband moving all around your home so you can start flexing in the living room. And that sourdough can start rising in the kitchen. For streaming from the front door to the attic, connect with our best ever Wi-Fi all around your home. Sky Broadband. Your world is limitless. 
For more information, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.